Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed, where every week we debunk the myths and clarify the facts about breastfeeding. So today I have with me Jillian Weaver. Jillian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Marie. Nice to be here. We wanted to invite Jillian Weaver today because we are all, and I hope all of us, are celebrating World Human Milk Donation Day. So let me tell you a little bit about why we asked Jillian. Uh, she has a Bachelor's of Science and also a is a registered dietitian. She has specialized in human milk banking and breastfeeding for 30 years. From 1989 until 2015, she managed, get this, the longest continually operating milk bank in the world. At that time, she proposed and co-founded the UK Association for Milk Banking, and she was instrumental in founding the European Milk Banking Association. For those of you who might know, that is EMBA. And she's serving as the president, uh, or did at least, from 2012 until 2015. She coordinated international conferences and helped to develop donor milk guidelines, including the NICE Clinical Guideline 93 and the BAPM's Framework for Practice, the use of donor milk expressed human milk for newborns, and the resolution on the use of donor human milk for Muslim infants. Now, since 2016... Jillian has been an international consultant helping establish milk banks in Australia, India, Kenya, and Vietnam. Together with Dr. Natalie Schenker, and you may remember that Dr. Schenker was on this show a few weeks ago, Jillian co-founded and is a director of the Hearts Milk Bank and the Human Milk Foundation. Jillian Weaver continues to lecture write, and contribute to human milk banking projects around the world. Jillian, you have an absolutely stellar record here for being an advocate for donor human milk. I'm I'm just overwhelmed, really, with all that you have done. I'm sure our listeners would say the same. But as you know, we are doing this show because tomorrow, or excuse me, yesterday, is um, the World Human Milk Donation Day. And um, I'm curious, I'd like to know, how exactly did the World Human Milk Donation Day get started, and what does it involve? Okay, well, great question to start us off, uh, Marie. So it started originally in South America, Hmm. Uh, Brazil has um, many, many milk banks and has huge experience of human milk banking, very, very active in the promotion of milk banking. And in 2004, they started uh, a national day of human milk banking. 
of ah. human, human milk donation. And that was okay. started as a special day to promote the importance of donation of donating breast milk to milk banks. Mm-hmm. And then about six years later, uh, in recognition of um, meetings that were being held across South and Central America um, to bring the milk banks together across across all those countries, they uh, they decided to establish a World Day of Human Milk Donation. So it starts in South America with the Ibero American Program of Human Milk Banks, and the reason that. May the 19th was chosen is because that was the day when the international cooperation throughout that region started and documents were of agreement were signed. What a wonderful way for people to recognize that we really need this kind of celebratory mentality in order to uh, really bring it to the forefront of people's minds about how important this is. You know, I was really unaware that I knew that Brazil was very pro-breastfeeding. I'm thinking about people like Dr. Elsa Giuliani, who has been extremely... uh, how should I say, a, a, a front runner, certainly, oh. in promoting breastfeeding there. But when you say that Brazil has a lot of milk banks, uh, can you give us a quantity there, more or less? Oh, oh, for sure. It, well, it's certainly more than 220. The last time <gasps> I, oh, my. I knew there were, there were, there were <laughs> 220. So <laughs> very, very many. They, they have a specific model of human milk banking in Brazil, which is where... Um, you know, they aim to have a milk bank as part of breastfeeding support centers within most hospitals. So that's 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 their aim. So the milk banks aren't separate entities as such. They are part of the whole ethos of supporting and promoting breastfeeding within the hospital, but also within the community. And thinking about what you said, Marie, about, about how, uh, how they uh, celebrate it. I've visited Brazil a few times. I've been invited very kindly by um, the Brazilian National Milk Banking people there, and uh, and you know you see you see buses with milk banks being promoted and advertised oh, drive, driving around wonderful. the towns. You see billboard huge billboard advertisements for donating breast milk. They really take this on board and they set, they celebrate it hugely. Breastfeeding generally is celebrated hugely in, in mm-hmm. Brazil, and and they really. Um, uh, you know, have as icons these 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 breast milk donors. So uh, they're they're a wonderful example. Oh, I'm thinking we Americans have something huge to learn here. Wow. And if I understand you correctly, Jillian, you are saying that the milk banks are pretty much part and parcel of the hospital birthing uh, facility, right? Absolutely, yes. So wow. within within the hospitals, the the donor milk is very much available to the the very tiny sick babies on on the neonatal units. Many of the mothers who are donating the milk are mothers in in the kangaroo mother care ward. So mothers yes. whose babies aren't so tiny or so sick to need to be on the um, you know, in an incubator or being cared for in, a, in, a, in the neonatal unit, but who need to be, you know, still need that extra care. So they're there with yes. the mothers. Um, and in and this is this was also true of this is also true of some of the other countries. For example, 
Vietnam, very okay. much the, the mothers who donate the, the, the breast milk in the first uh, milk bank in, in, in Vietnam, uh, their mums who are on the kangaroo mother care, uh, the skin-to-skin wards, and, uh, and they're there, they're caring for their babies, they're expressing milk because their babies may not be quite ready to, uh, to breastfeed, um, exclusively and so they're expressing milk and the surplus milk that they express can be donated to the milk bank. Oh, how fantastic. And Julian, really, you're transporting me back about, oh, I don't know, a little more than 40 years, I would say, when here in America, that also was our model. I know, for example, that there was at that time, in the 70s, there was a milk bank at the University of Rochester Medical Center, where, of course, I worked for many years. And even when I worked at Georgetown University Hospital, there was a milk bank associated with the hospital there. But what's kind of happened is that there's now uh, too many complexities, from what I can understand, for having the the milk banks attached to the hospitals. And so we've sort of gotten off from that model, but very good that you're saying that this exists so much in Brazil. And I'm blown away when you said they had a a lot. I thought, well, you know, like 50 or so, but wow, more than 220. So talk to us, please, if you would, for a donor human milk bank to exist, we have to have donors. So how would you characterize the donors? Well, I often I often answer this question, who are the donors? People say yeah. to me when they hear about milk banking, but who are the donors? Who are these women who give you the milk? Yeah. And by and large, they they can be categorized into three main groups. And each of these groups will more or less um, be the sort of predominant group in different models of milk banking. And there are definitely, as we've already described very different models of milk banking around the world, depending Mm -hmm. upon economics, depending upon history and tradition and all sorts of things. But within these three main groups, the first group is the group that I kind of think of as the archetypal milk donor. So it's a mother who is exclusively breastfeeding, a thriving infant, they're at home, baby's growing well, um, breastfeeding's going well. And this mum kind of feels, well, do you know what? I've got plenty of milk. Maybe I could share some of this milk with a milk bank. She's got to know that there are milk banks that she can contact and donate to. And these mums, these mothers will express milk usually once a day, but on a daily basis. They will often freeze the milk at home. It's usually frozen and stored at home for some time until they've got enough stored to be able to donate as a batch of milk. So these are healthy mothers. They've got uh, usually very well babies uh, and they're expressing milk on a regular basis. And these are very important donors for milk banks because, you know, you know that you can rely on um, getting plenty of these of these mothers, and they will give you milk steadily over a period of time. It varies how long they will donate to. Some will donate for maybe a month. Um, some donors will donate for three or four months, and we've had donors who've donated for you know a year or oh, more. Wow. So, uh, so depending on their circumstances. So, sure. so that's one group of donors. Okay. The other, there's another group of donors who tend to give a one-off donation. 
uh, but can that donation can be you know really quite a large volume of milk it can be it can be up to now then I get confused here because in North America you measure your milk in fluid ounces and oh, we measure okay. it we measure it in, in mils and milliliters and liters <laughs> so okay no, so, no problem so, I can, so I, okay, <laughs> I can translate. Okay, lovely. I can translate. But as 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 many people will know, if you if your if your baby is is born very early or is or is um is very unwell and is being cared for for quite a long time on a neonatal unit, and you are expressing and storing milk for your own baby, um, whilst they're very tiny, they may only be taking, you know, maybe. 50 or 70, 100 mils, so a couple of ounces, two or three ounces of milk a day in those early, in those early periods. Now, for a mum to, to be able to uh, know that she's going to be able to breastfeed her, ba- her baby in a month or two or three months' time, she needs to establish a good supply to be able to keep it going. So yes. she may be expressing you know, up to a litre of milk a day. Okay. Um, Which is and- a little less than a quart. Right. Okay. Lovely. Uh-huh. Thank yep. you. I'll yep. take your word for it. <laughs> yep. And uh, and and so a lot of milk is getting stored now. When that baby gets bigger and weller and more mature and is and starting to establish breastfeeding and then is is exclusively breastfeeding, you know she comes to the conclusion often. Well, a I've got a huge amount of milk. I don't know where I'm going to store it when my baby goes home, and I need to take mm-hmm. it with me from the hospital. Or, um, you know, well, actually, I'm just not going to need it because breastfeeding is going really well. My milk supply is established. And so many mothers in that situation can donate some or all of that milk. So it may be a one-off donation, but it could be huge volumes of milk. Absolutely. And then within that group, um, there are those very sad occasions when a baby has been on a neonatal unit, may have been there again for several weeks or, or, or sometimes months, and then has very sadly died. And uh, that, that mother can donate the milk that has been stored uh, for, for her baby. And that's, that's a really, you know, very special circumstances and a very special gift that mothers in that situation uh, donate to milk banks. Now, within those last two groups, so the the, the, the neonatal unit babies uh, and the bereaved mothers, some of those also continue to kind of go into group one once okay. they're, you know, um, uh, and continue to express milk on an ongoing basis. So they're kind of like, you know, an extra group as well. But those are the three main circumstances. Now, they are mothers in very different circumstances, um, each of each of those, but they're all sharing uh, their milk with unknown mothers and, and, and unknown babies. And they all go through the same screening process uh, it may be a little bit different for bereaved mothers in terms of the literature and the questionnaires. We may not. We may ask some different questions, um, and okay. we use very diff- very different literature um, and uh, and and so on with with bereaved mothers. Um, but uh, the the screening that will be done, the um, the recruitment criteria will be pretty well the same for all those groups. Jillian, I hear you talking and I have so many questions on my mind. And uh, well, we're going to need to take a break here shortly, but it is really helping me to understand what a US centric headset that I have. Because as I hear you talking, I'm thinking, oh, I'm not really sure we quite do it that way. And so I really want to encourage our listeners, and we have listeners in more than 150 countries here. So uh, remember, Remember that 
everybody may do it a little bit differently, but nonetheless, it is well worth being a donor. It is certainly well worth receiving the milk if you are a premature baby. That's what you're thinking is going to be your lifeline to actually living in some circumstances. So everybody, do not go away. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm here today with uh, Jillian Weaver, and we will be right back after this short break. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894. And ask for your bulk discount. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm here today with my special guest, Jillian Weaver. Jillian is an expert on all matters milk donation. And as you know, we are celebrating World Human Milk Donation Day. So Jillian is a wonderful guest for this show. Jillian, before we went to break, you were saying that there are three main groups of donors, those with healthy 
thriving, exclusively breastfed babies, those who have stored their milk on a neonatal, or at least in a neonatal uh, ICU type of situation, uh, and uh, the third group being those who have been bereaved. I would agree that all of those are things that we would see and expect to be pretty much the way it is here in North America. But where I got a little lost in my thoughts was, I'm thinking, wait a minute, don't you have to do screening before you accept the milk? Because that is my understanding, and maybe I'm wrong, or maybe what I understand is not worldwide. Can you help us with the part about how, okay, so how does screening differ, if at all? Okay, so as as I explained earlier, all, all donors to a human milk bank will be screened, and irrespective of which group they may belong to, much of the screening will be the same. And certainly milk would never be used before the mothers had been through the screening. But the fact that that, uh, milk may have been stored previously, it just means that extra care may be needed to for um, to have the discussion about and consider, for example, at the time the milk was being expressed, so maybe three or four weeks ago, was the mother taking it, taking these medications, or was she, uh, you know, infection? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Any okay, of the things, any of the things that might might apply. So okay. the screen, the screening is done. The milk can be quarantined in the meantime, so it can be kept frozen. It can be kept isolated in a human milk bank to make sure that it's, you know, it isn't being um, used before this, before all the screening has happened. But it means that milk that otherwise would go to waste, that may be discarded, doesn't have to be. So here, I don't know that this is a hard and fast rule, but pretty much the milk banks are not interested in milk if your baby is more than a year old. Is that the case in England or Brazil or any other place that you know of? Okay. Well, certainly in the UK, um, that would have that would have been true in a sort of blanket way up until fairly recently. Um, ah, okay. And the difference has been that, uh, and you, you talked about myself and, and Natalie Schenker, Dr. Schenker, who, oh, yeah. you know, um, co-founding the Hearts Milk Bank. One of the things that we have been doing in the UK that isn't done very much generally is supplying donor milk to babies uh, at home, so babies in the community. And because those babies um, will often be older than the than the tiny uh, sick babies in in hospital, um, they we don't have to restrict the donor milk uh, so much to you know that that mother's the age of the donor's own sure. baby. Sure. So the reasons, the rationale behind having a cutoff. Um, sort of for some it may be six months, nine months a year. It tends to differ all over the place, and there's not there's not a huge amount of science that's been behind it. There've been some presumptions that the older the donor's baby was, the less nutritious the milk is. And actually, this is a myth that act- that is being pretty well debunked now, because mm. uh, to use your terminology. <laughs> Bec- and because 
uh, we're starting to understand that actually once babies, once the baby gets past a year, the mother's milk may start to increase in its protein content. It kind of seems to get a little bit more concentrated. So, so actually thinking that the older the baby is, the less, the less nutritious the milk is, um, is, is probably uh, not a correct assumption. There are definitely mm-hmm. some, some de- declines, some decreases yes. in some of, the, uh, some of the minerals in milk. Zinc is a classic case. I was just going to say. It kind of yep. re- mm-hmm. re- reduces and reduces. But yep. to refuse a whole demographic of, of potential donors because the milk could be short, could, could have less zinc in. And it will depend on other things as well. There's very individual variations. But because of that, seems, you know, a little bit strange when you can always um, you know, either fortify the milk or you can supplement the baby in some way or, or, or whatever. But certainly uh, also some of those immune components. And if we, if we think of why we feed donor milk, to these babies sure it's for the nutrition but even more than that it's to it's to enable these babies to receive you know all these added extras that are in human milk so these these very many immune components the the human milk oligosaccharides that that help them to develop a you know really healthy gut microbiome and and so on now some of some of these actually increase so uh we need to know more and I can see and I can see my colleague Natalie. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this, her, her eyes her eyes light up at this because we just need more information, more and more research, and it is being done. It's being done globally, which is fantastic. We're learning so much more uh, about human milk and about the wonders of the breasts that make the human milk. It's uh, oh, it's, it's it's fantastic. Jillian, this would be a wonderful opportunity for me to put in a little plug for those of you who did not have an opportunity to listen to uh, my podcast with Dr. Natalie Schenker. You should. Uh, Dr. Schenker is partners with Jillian Weaver, my guest today. But I must tell you that I could barely be host of the show with uh, Dr. Schenker because she just had so much new and exciting information to tell us about uh, the the immune properties. Uh, Jillian, that was in no way to uh, make make it sound as though you were not new and exciting. But <laughs> <laughs> Yours is just from a different perspective. But um, I would agree with you. I think that people don't really understand that even though human milk absolutely changes in components, there is no question about it. And I think there's very good evidence that shows that the amount of zinc decreases after a year or so, or at least in those late uh you know, nine, 10, 11 months, somewhere yeah, around in there. For sure. For uh, sure. But nonetheless, I think we need to recognize that those immune factors are something the baby is not going to get from the formula. And so, right, let's try to think about, okay, great, how can we make up whatever extra zinc or whatever it is that we're concerned about? Uh, certainly that makes a lot of sense. So, yes, uh, most definitely, and I, I would agree with you that just saying just because it's, quote, too old doesn't mean that it has no value, which I think oh, was your main message. Yeah, here. Abs- abs- yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, possibly even the contrary. 
Alrighty, so you blew away the and, and debunked that myth about the uh, screening of donors. You said, yes, it does vary between countries. And that brings me to another question, which is, it is my sort of very simple understanding that although here in the U.S., we always pasteurize milk that is donated to a formal milk bank, that is not necessarily the case worldwide. So can you talk to us a little bit about pasteurization or lack thereof? I, I absolutely can, yes. So my experience in human milk banking in the UK, and in fact, and and throughout North America and South America, um, um, most of Europe and most of the rest of the world actually all donor milk that goes through a human milk bank, an established human milk bank, will be pasteurized. And for your listeners, Marie, pasteurization is a special heat treatment uh, that the human milk undergoes. It raises the temperature of the milk sufficiently high to inactivate and destroy uh, viruses and bacteria that may be contaminants in the in the milk. Uh, but not so high as to reduce too much all of these very valuable immune components and the and the nutritional components we've been talking about. So mm-hmm. the temperature that is chosen generally is 62.5 degrees centigrade. And that yeah. is a temperature at which the, as I said, the any harmful components in the harmful um, contaminants that, that may have got into the milk uh, can be uh, destroyed. But uh, but not so hot as to as to dis, as to destroy too much. It certainly reduces, but doesn't doesn't um, eradicate those very beneficial yes. other components. Now, for you Americans, the, you might be wondering. That's uh, excuse me for interrupting. It's about <laughs> it's about 144 degrees. Um, the the 62.5. I assume well, that you're talking about holder pasteurization. That's right. And, exactly. Uh, I would have to do some digging on this, but I would assume that we probably drink our coffee at somewhere in the 144 degrees Fahrenheit uh, neighborhood. So uh, Jillian is not talking the boiling point by any means. Far, uh, far from boiling. It's, yeah. it's, it's so hot you wouldn't want to put your hand, you wouldn't keep your hands in it um, sure. if, if you, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the water bath. And most, most milk is heat treated by the milk being in containers that are then put into a water bath and that raises the temperature of the milk. The milk, it's called holder pasteurization and that's partly because the, the milk is held at that temperature and the time is 30 minutes. So the combination of that temperature with that time is the is the other uh, uh, the parameters for the for the holder pasteurization. The milk is then very quickly or should very quickly be chilled in order to take the heat out of it and so to prevent the ongoing destruction of these valuable components. And if you get if you have uh, um, equipment that enables you to be able to heat the milk at these very accurately at these temperatures have very good time. Um, you know timings on it, and then chill the milk very quickly down to down to well, pretty cold, certainly less than ten degrees. Um, okay. Then that's that's a good balance that that's needed. But very interestingly, uh, in uh, certainly in some northern European countries, and and Norway is the classic example. 
In uh-huh. Norway, they okay. don't they don't pasteurize very much milk at all. The vast mm. majority of the donated milk is fed raw. But in order to do that, they um, they do extra screening, and this is one of the ways in which screening can differ. Because the milk won't be heat treated, um, they screen the the donors more frequently. So they may have the blood tests that are part of the screening that uh, that donors would undergo. They will do those at, at least every couple of months, uh, and 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 may do it more. So say every four to four to eight weeks, they will they will re-screen the donors via blood tests. They also have much stricter criteria for the numbers of bacteria that they will accept within within Uh the milk. So so the levels of contamination, and these would just, the only contamination that they will accept in terms of bacteria would be kind of normal skin bacteria that you would expect to be in in the milk. Um, Any pathogenic bacteria like, um, you know, Staph aureus or any... um, uh, Enteric Club organisms, CLO uh, yeah, or any of, those, of that. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Any, any uh-huh. of those. You wouldn't. They, they wouldn't accept any of those. So coliforms, as um, uh, any any of the um, Enterobacteriaceae, that you wouldn't. Um, you wouldn't accept any of any of those. So they have stricter criteria, and the milk that they also do some extra blood tests. So, for example, if you're heat treating the milk, it's unusual to test. For uh, a virus called uh, cytomegalovirus or CMV, oh, yeah. it's CMV. a very com- yep. it's a very common vi- it's a very common virus. It's it's inactivated completely by the pasteurization, and so it's not something that needs to be screened for. In Norway, uh, the the donors will be will be tested, and if they're shown to be positive for for CMV, it doesn't mean they can't donate, but their milk can't be used raw. And most of the milk in, in, in Norway is, is, is used raw. There are very good reasons for using it raw, of course, in that, yes. you know, you have the total complement of, of, um, of all the components of the human milk. So you're not reducing any of them. What I think is fascinating to me is that in, in some of the uh, neonatal units in, uh, in Germany, they, I think they have the best of all worlds because they, uh, they use raw milk with the very tiny or very sick, very vulnerable babies. Uh, and the milk that doesn't meet the criteria to be fed raw will be pasteurized and that will be fed to the older babies. So the ones mm. that absolutely need, you know, the very many, you know, fantastic beneficial components of the breast milk um, are, are the ones that will get the most of it. Um, oh, so that they will, makes they will so get much the sense. It does make sense. The, yeah. difficulty, the difficulty with this is that it's a much more expensive, you know, process to, to follow. Uh, you may not need to do the heat treating, but there's the extra blood test uh, uh, and, and you, you know, more of your milk will fail these, uh, uh, these, sure. these extra... Uh, criteria. Uh, so, well, and you mentioned the extra expense, but the other way to look at it would be if those babies actually have shorter lengths of stay in the hospital yeah. and fewer disease processes, then at the end of the day, it's actually more economical. Hey, everybody, do not go away. I am here today with Jillian Weaver. I cannot wait to ask her more about milk banking with a specific eye to the international issues. That 
that she has just brought up for us because she is probably one of the most knowledgeable people in the world about that. So don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894. And ask for your bulk discount. What's the weirdest place I've ever done it? Probably at my niece's high school musical during intermission. I've done it on an airplane. In our minivan while his mother was driving. Hi, Mom. What's the weirdest place I've ever pumped? Probably the car dealership. In the bathroom at my sister's wedding. Finding a good place to pump can be hard. Donating breast milk is easy. No matter where you've pumped, you'd make a good donor to the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin. Learn how your milk can save lives at milkbank.org slash gooddonor. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuto. 
I'm here today with my guest, Jillian Weaver, and we are going to talk to you about some of the most important concepts as related to World Human Milk Donation Day, which I hope all of you are celebrating. If you aren't celebrating, you should celebrate. And if you don't do anything else to celebrate, maybe you can just applaud as uh, Jillian gets through telling us some things that are just hugely important to our understanding of human milk banking. So, Jillian, as you know, my theme for this show has always been busting the myths, debunking the myths, because I have been in this business long enough to know that what people think about breastfeeding and human milk is often very untrue, especially as related to topics like uh, human milk banking. So, at least from where you sit, which is an ocean away from me, what would you say are some of the biggest myths that people have about donor human milk banking? And by that, I'm talking about formal milk banks, not just community sharing. Okay, well, there are these myths, and they're... um they perpetuate, they, they continue, and it astonishes me how, how this happens. But let me, let, me, let me give a go. I think the biggest myth is that the milk won't be safe. Yeah. So, you know, in the past, over the years, I've heard this said, not to me, because people who are talking to me will, will probably have, have, got the under, have got an understanding, but, um, you know, parents will say to me, you know, oh, I... I uh, or, or mothers will say, oh, you know, I, I was talking to my healthcare professional and saying I wanted to, to donate milk. And, the, and this person was saying, oh, milk banks all closed down because, you know, it's not safe anymore, especially, uh, since, especially since HIV. HIV, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, I've talked, I've talked a little bit uh, now about the pasteurization of the milk. One of the, well, one of the reasons why pasteurization became kind of compulsory throughout most milk banks is because it will inactivate HIV. So HIV is a virus that can be transmitted via, via human milk, um, but the pasteurization process inactivates it. So most milk banks around the world will screen donors for HIV. Uh, but of course, you can, you can do blood tests on someone at, at, at one point. It doesn't mean that they're absolutely or in you know, a month or two months time couldn't have, couldn't have become infected with the virus. It's, it's unlikely, but you, in order to be absolutely certain, the heat treatment, the pasteurization is the one thing that you know will eradicate the virus from the milk. So if the milk is heat treated at those at that temperature that I talked about, the 144 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, 62 and a half degrees centigrade, for 30 minutes, that absolutely will inactivate the virus. So that's, uh, that's a kind of very um, important consideration for anyone that's thinking about the safety. The other thing that's wrapped up in the safety is that we're talking about donors here. And my definition of a donor is is somebody who gives something freely. Sure. When somebody donates something, whether it's blood or human milk, or if you're donating, you know, some something else, whatever it whatever it is to to charity, you're you're giving it in order to do good. 
True. And and so one of the first steps, one of the first safety steps is that people, you know, make that decision that they know that they're going to donate their milk, that they're not doing anything that could be harmful to the recipient. Now, of course, they need to know about what could be harmful. So it's, it's sure. very important that uh, milk banks ensure that the, the, the mothers who are donating the milk are aware of the things that they could be doing that would make the milk either harmful or certainly less less beneficial. And the reason why it's so important that they always um, uh, inform the milk bank if they start to take any, any medications, so antibiotics, for example, uh, antibiotics taken by the mother, very important that she, she takes them and completes the course and, and, and all that. But milk that has tiny traces of, of antibiotics in, we wouldn't want to give to, you know, babies that didn't need to have those. We, right. we know that we would want right. to keep it. So, so, we, so mothers, the donors need to know that, uh, you know, if they're taking medications, they need to, they need to explain that. We, we will ask questions about travel. Um, you know, have you been to any countries, for example, where certain infections may be endemic? So it might be West Nile virus, it could be Zika, it mm. could be uh, other viruses. And, and so, again, we need to make sure that donors are, are aware of this. In the UK, we give all our donors um, uh, a, a, a chart that they use to record their freezer temperatures on. So we make sure the milk is oh. stored appropriately. appropriately. At home. So, mm-hmm. so we mm-hmm. give them a freezer thermometer and they record their freezer temperatures every day. And then when the milk is donated, they send that chart to the milk bank. But on it, they sign and they, there's a whole tick box to say that, you know, during the time that that milk was being expressed, uh, you know, there were no infections in the house. They didn't. Uh, they weren't taking medications. They didn't start smoking. They've already declared that they don't smoke. Um, that they, uh, you know, things like their alcohol intake was within the limits. We have very, very low um, intakes of alcohol that are acceptable. That's one of the things that differs around the world. Some parts of the world, there's no alcohol is the is the upper limit, and, yes. and others mm-hmm. some some is. So, um, excuse me, um, for our listeners, just remember that even though the milk bank might not accept you as a donor, that milk might be just fine for your own baby. But remember that this milk may be going to a baby who is already fighting for his life and he cannot afford to have any uh, uh, substances which might be just a teeny bit wrong for him, but that teeny bit wrong is yeah. it, it really is a game changer for that baby. Yeah. So Absolutely. please so please don't feel badly if you feel like you have had uh, exposure to something that does and you're nursing your own baby. Please don't get worried about what uh, what uh, Jillian just said. But from the standpoint of the donor, this is really important. Uh, yeah. So that's, Jillian that's a- Oh, sorry, can I, can I just say that? It's such a fantastic, yeah. I'm so glad you said that because as part of all our literature in the Hearts Milk Bank, we make that point again and again that these are babies who may have a compromised liver, kidney function, all these yes. things. The last thing they need is these, is, is, is you know, even, even tiny, tiny amounts of, of some medications if it's not necessary, but you're absolutely right. We, we, are, we are very, very careful to ensure that none of our um, mothers are, are get any sort of idea that that their milk is in no way you know we don't want them to think it's in any way 
um, you know, not the best inferior or dangerous or whatever. No, no, it's a whole other uh, it's a whole other thing when you are giving the baby, uh, giving the milk to a baby who is not your own, who has some very often by yeah. definition <laughs> has some very special circumstances. Oh. So, uh, Jillian, just quick yes or no. Would you say that most of the things that you're most concerned for would be infections or uh, medications as related to safety? Oh, infections definitely. The last, the last thing babies need are in, infections that could yeah. be transmitted. So that's absolutely so. Um, oh, okay. Next, next would be any sort of drugs of abuse. We obviously don't want any sure. of those. Um, uh, but uh, medications, uh, you know, if they if they if they can be if they can be screened out. Actually, what we're starting to do now is is the the ones that are absolutely screened out for very tiny babies in hospital we're much more relaxed about for bigger babies so bigger babies so, i agree so, yeah. so certainly at the hearts at the hearts milk bank we kind of have a two-tier system so that uh you know mums who up until we started would be excluded from being able to donate we will we will now um we will now happily accept but their milk will only be used with babies who are well, who, you know, and the reason sure. they're getting the donor milk is because probably their mothers are unwell. So we okay. provide donor milk to mum to babies at home where their mother is very ill and can't and can't breastfeed to so ensure that they, that they get, you know. Um, some some breast milk to to get them going. On no, a it's good about course. the circumstances for yeah, sure. For sure. Uh, yeah. Jillian, I feel like I must be just too old to get through to some of my colleagues these days. But when I was a young nurse, drip milk was something <laughs> that I was reading about a lot. And now we've got a lot of these young mothers who are having dripped milk and nobody says a word to them and they think that that's just all fine and dandy. But I thought from all of the reading that I did probably in the early to mid 80s when all of that maybe not all but the the vast majority it seemed of studies were done in that uh, early 80s to mid 80s about dripped milk being both contaminated and low in fat so can you talk to us is that a myth and am I making this up or is this still relevant drip milk being low in fat definitely isn't a myth. No, um, it's you only have to look at it and you can see that the milk that drips from one breast whilst the baby's feeding from the other um, is 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 usually and you, again you can't talk in absolutes so anything sure. to do with sure. breastfeeding and breast milk but but usually is very low in in fat and and, and as the baby feeds at the breast towards the end of the feed is generally when they start to get. Uh, you know, the more fat-rich milk. Or if you're expressing milk, expressing uh, fully the breast, you will see that the milk gets kind of creamier and yellower as the, yes. as the, expression, as the expression goes on. So no, that isn't a myth that drip milk is, is, is low in fat. It's not low in protein and it's not low in, in some of these immune components. So it's not like it's, you know, it's not, doesn't have... Um, that it's completely, you know, valueless. Uh, sure, but what sure. it what it isn't good for is um, is helping tiny babies to grow. <laughs> and of course, when babies are born very early, one of their biggest challenges is is to grow and to get big enough to enable to, you know, their Absolutely. lung function to improve and their gut function to improve and and so on. And Absolutely. so. 
feeding them an exclusive drip milk diet was not a great thing. However, having said that, the babies that did get the drip milk, um, they were certainly still protected against necrotizing enterocolitis. Yeah, so they may not have grown so well, but um, <laughs> but but that that very low calorie milk. Um, you know, was 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 still protective. We know enough now to know that it's much better if 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 and, and milk banks will generally uh, only accept expressed milk. That that um, because we know that nutritionally it's it's um, it's superior. We have just a short period of time left here. Could you summarize for us if you were to list the three or four? Uh, practices that are the most different between uh, milk banks around the world, what would you say are the three or four things that are that vary the most from country to country? Okay, um, right. Well, first of all is who the donors are. In, in countries uh, that have fewer resources uh, at their disposal, then um, and countries where, or, or circumstances where maybe mom, maybe mothers don't have uh, freezers at home or facilities to to safely co- collect and store the milk, then they will be much more likely to be reliant on mothers who are in hospital as their as their source of of, of donor milk. So that's that's one big difference. Um, okay. So countries. Um, North America, certainly the UK, most of Europe, the donors are predominantly going to be, in terms of numbers of donors, are going to be mums um, who've you know got a baby at home, as I described at the at the beginning of this uh, of this conversation. So, so that's one of the big differences. The other differences will be in some of the screening. So, um, again, it comes down to resources. It's expensive to do extra blood tests so what some uh, milk banks so for example in um uh, in vietnam uh the, the 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 first milk bank there they've got a fabulous milk bank it's 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 a great example of a newly um you know a new resource for the country um but they instead of doing extra blood tests on on the mothers they look at the blood tests that those mothers had when they were admitted to the to the hospital when their baby oh, was uh-huh. delivered and 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 they use those um, okay. so that uh, that would be a difference and then what else so some of the some of the equipment will be will be different um, in terms of um, the pasteurization equipment um, this can vary so through in many of the North American milk banks um, some use uh, automatic human milk pasteurization equipment. Others use uh, shaking water baths and then transfer oh, them, uh-huh. the, the milk to, to ice. Now, it may initially seem that the automatic pasteurizing equipment would be, you know, kind of the state of the art. Uh, and indeed, it's, fun- it's fantastically useful if, your, if you want your staff to be able to go off and leave the milk to pasteurize, you put it in at the beginning and it comes out, uh, comes out at the end and the whole process runs automatically. But actually being able to transfer the milk very quickly from you know, the hot water to ice chills it very quickly and that can be advantageous. So, so differences in, in equipment and 
So in processing, yes, uh, yes. Uh, well, we need to leave it right there because uh, this hour has gone by very, very quickly. Wow. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Jillian Weaver. Thanks to all of our listeners. Without you, we would not have a show. Now, if you'd like to have a little more Marie and to some extent a little bit more Jillian and definitely a little bit more Natalie Schenker, uh, who was our guest earlier and is Jillian's partner, please join me at MarieBianCuzzo.com. That's M-A-R-I-E-B-I-A-N-C-U-Z-Z-O, MarieBianCuzzo.com. I am Marie Biancuzzo, <laughs> and I'd like you to remember, your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuzo next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby. 